Growing old in America can be difficult. Fortunately, the 71st Psalm tells us of three things we need to develop and three habits we need to form so we can have a productive, meaningful old age. Now for today's host, Bill Petrie. There is something which everybody wants and yet almost everyone fears, growing old. Old age has many frightening aspects, an aging body, which is more susceptible to illness, declining strength, the feelings of uselessness, especially after we retire, the loss of friends and loved ones through death, and the reality of one's own death drawing nearer loneliness, feelings of alienation from one's children and grandchildren, who are busy with other interests and pursuits, or who have moved away where you can't visit them on a daily basis. And very often, there is the financial concerns due to dwindling income and inflation. Sadly, our American culture does not esteem the elderly. We are a self-centered, utilitarian society. The very younger generations often view the elderly as a financial burden. And if they require our care, is an interference in the pursuit of pleasure and success. This was most outrageously stated a few years ago by then Colorado Governor Richard Lamb. In a discussion of rising health care costs, he said that terminally ill elderly people, and I'm going to quote, have a duty to die and get out of the way, end of quote. Most would be more polite, but the underlying attitudes are there. Dr. Kevorkian assisted Governor Lamb's wish come true by assisting the terminally ill in suicide. It is interesting, by the way, that in China, old age is still viewed as the most respected stage of life. In Shanghai, one of the five largest cities in the world, in the late 1970s, there was only one home for the aged. Most of the elderly there are cared for in the family context. But as you and I face the prospects of growing old in America, we need to ask ourselves, what should I be doing now, however old I am, to prepare for old age? The fact is, you will be then what you are becoming now. If you are not becoming a person of faith now, you will not be a person of faith then. If you are a negative, grumpy person now, you will not be a positive, cheerful person then. If you are not developing a walk with God now, you will not have one then. Psalm chapter 71 is the psalm of an old man. He is an old man with many trials and problems. But he is obviously a joyful man who can put his focus on the Lord in the midst of these trials. The psalm shows us 
to put it simply, that God's way to grow old is to develop a walk with him now. The reason that the psalmist could handle his problem so well as an old man was that he had developed a walk with God in the years leading up to his time. He had a proven resource in the Lord, which enabled him to be strong inside, even though his body was growing weaker and his enemies were more powerful. We do not know for sure who wrote Psalm 71. Some scholars think it was the prophet Jeremiah. But I agree with those who think that David wrote this psalm at the time of Absalom's rebellion, perhaps as he quartered across the river Jordan, awaiting the outcome of the battle. The psalm pieces several elements together from other Davidic psalms. For instance, you'll see shades of the 22nd, 31st, 35th, 40th, and 109th Psalm. The reference to praising God on harp and lyre in verse 22 of Psalm 71 sounds like David. And the reference to having his greatness increased in verse 21 could refer to David's being restored to the throne. The circumstances in which the psalmist finds himself fit, David, at the time, of Absalom's rebellion, shame in verse 1, oppressed by evil men in verse 4, enemies speaking against him and seeking to kill him in verses 10, 11, 13, and 24, a life of many troubles in verse 7 and 20. He had trusted God from his youth in verses 5 and 17, yet now he was old and gray in verses 9 and 18. We know that David was in his early 60s and that he died at the age of 70. At any rate, there were three aspects of his walk with God, which the author had developed over the years, which stood him in good stead at this time of trial in his old age. We need to develop... First, a deep knowledge of God. The psalm is permeated with a deep personal understanding and practical knowledge of the Lord God. He had been taught of God even from his youth, according to verse 17. The man knew God as his refuge in verse 1, and he uses the phraseology strong refuge in verse 7. And he knows him as his righteous Savior in verse 2. John Calvin, in his commentary on pages 632 and 633, argues that God's righteousness frequently mentioned here in verses 2, 15, 16, 19, and 24, refers to his faithfulness to his own people and keeping his promises. He calls God his rock of habitation, his rock and fortress, and his hope and confidence. He talks of God's mighty deeds, his strength and power in verse 18, 
the great things he has done in verse 19. He realized that it was God who brought him into trouble and God who delivered and restored him in verse 20. God was his source of comfort in this trial in verse 21. God had redeemed his soul in verse 23, as he exclaims, Oh God, who is like you? In verse 19, he could testify that his mouth was filled with God's praise and glory and righteousness all day long. In verses 8, 22, 23, and 24, this man knew his God. It is obvious that he had known him for years and it proved God's faithfulness in several previous difficult situations. So in this instance, when he needs to trust in God, it is not a matter of God, if you exist, whoever you are. If you are out there, I need your help. He did not need to take a blind leap of faith because he knew his God in a personal practical, proven way. May I ask you, do you know God like that? Are you growing in the process of developing such knowledge through his word and through applying his word to your experience? One of the most important things that each of you can do to prepare for whatever crisis we may have to face in the future is to be spending time in God's word, getting to know God. As you read his word, ask yourself, what does this passage teach me about my God? And then seek to see if you can apply it to your daily problems. I know a man who several years ago saw his neighbor's two daughters who were in grade school in junior high at the time. They came running out of their house in a panic. Smoke came billowing out the door behind them. He discovered that there was a grease fire in their oven and their parents were not home. He ran into the kitchen and assumed they must not have a fire extinguisher or they would have used it. So he tried to smother the fire with flour that did not work. Finally, in desperation, he asked, do you have a fire extinguisher by any chance? It turned out that they had three of them. One of the girls gave him one and he had the fire out in seconds. The fire extinguisher was an adequate resource for that crisis, but the girls did not know how to use it or had no experience in using it. So it did not do them any good. To benefit from the extinguisher, they needed to know what it could do and how to use it in that emergency. In the same way, we need to know our God and what he can do so that we can lay hold of the tremendous resources that belong to us as his children. If we are learning that right now, 
then we will know him. Is our confidence when the crisis of old age comes upon us? The second thing, we need to develop the godly habits of trust, praise, and hope or expectation. A habit is developed by frequent repetition over time. Once it is in place, a habit becomes almost involuntary. Our attitudes, how we respond mentally and emotionally to life's problems, tend to become habitual responses. Some people become habitual worriers. Some become habitual complainers. Some become habitually negative, pessimistic, and angry. Others become habitually cheerful and positive. The habits we develop in our younger years tend to take us further in that direction as we grow older. A little Hebrew word repeated in verses 3, 6, and 14 that is translated continually by the NASB and always in the NIV tips us off to the habits the psalmist had developed. They are not habits we pick up naturally. They must be deliberately cultivated. But as for me, Psalm 71.14 states, it points to firm resolve. In fact, they stem from his knowledge of God. They are the habits of trust in verse 3, praise in verse 6, and hope or expectation depending upon your translation in verse 14. Let's talk about the habit of trust for a second in verse 3. The whole psalm is an affirmation of the psalmist's trusts in the Lord. Spurgeon calls it the utterance of struggling but unstaggering faith in his work, The Treasury of David, Volume 3, page 294. He was struggling because he was in difficult circumstances, with many seeking his life, but he was unstaggering in his faith because he knew whom he believed. Such faith stems from a knowledge of God. True knowledge dispels doubt and fear. We fear and mistrust that which we do not know, whereas we are more inclined to trust that which we know well, assuming it is trustworthy. I think it's important when we study these things to understand that the psalmist knew God. He had learned to trust God through some other tough times. We see this in Psalm 7120. And he knew, therefore, that God would see him through this time. 
Are you developing a habit of trusting God in the difficult times of your life? Or are you frequently filled with worry and doubt and fear? If you have trouble trusting, concentrate on getting to know God. Review what God has already done for you. There is a tremendous emphasis in Psalm 71 and what God has done. Just look at verses 5, 6, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 23, and 24. All of this strengthens faith. His God ever preserved your life? Has he saved you from your sins? Do you have a relationship with God? Has he sustained you this far? If you can answer yes to these things, then you can trust him for your present problems and for any which arise in the future. The habit of praise in verse 6. Praise is not a natural habit, at least not for most people. Most people tend to be grumblers and complainers by nature. But God wants us to be people of praise, even when difficult times come. God wants us to learn to praise him. The psalmist had deliberately developed that habit. Just read verses 8, 14, and 22 through 24. How can we learn to praise God when trials come? The answer is learn to trust him. Because just as trust stems from knowing God, so praise stems from trusting God. This is true on the human plane as well as on the divine. You cannot praise a person you do not trust. If you feel that there is something about a person that you cannot trust, you will not sing his praises to others. It is the same way with God. If deep down inside you doubt God's goodness or faithfulness for allowing some trial to come your way, then you will not praise him or trust him. And not trusting him, you cannot honestly praise him. If you are a complainer and have trouble developing a habit of praise, I would suggest the same two steps I mentioned under trust. First, concentrate on getting to know God and his ways. This psalm emphasizes God's righteousness. Verse 2, 15, 16, 19, and 24 all speak of God's righteousness. Because the psalmist was fearing unjust treatment at the hands of unrighteous men, and he wanted to affirm the righteousness of, God, of the God he trusted, he is good and faithful. And even when he 
allows troubles and distresses to enter into our lives, he still is good and faithful, according to verse 20. Second, every day we need to review what God has already done for us. Count your many blessings. Name them one by one. We tend to forget his many benefits on our behalf, all undeserved, and thus we fail in praise. When I was dealing with my cancer treatments, sometimes what would get me through the day was counting the blessings that I had. Seeing my children, seeing my wife, knowing that God had granted me one more day to be a part of their life. Knowing that the Lord had allowed me the opportunity to be a participant in a totally experimental program that very few people had the opportunity to be in. All of these things were things I could look at and count my blessings for. But perhaps the one thing we all neglect is being thankful for the fact that God loved us and allowed his son to come down to this planet and to die as a payment for sin. He was our sin sacrifice. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 through 4 state that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Believing this and placing my trust in this is what allows me to have a relationship with God. I am his child. What greater blessing could I count than this? All of us have things that we should be grateful for that we can count our blessings for. Recite them every day. This begins to develop that habit of praise. Then there's the habit of hope or expectation that we read in Psalm 71, 14. The psalmist had not only developed habits of trust and praise, but also of hope or expectation. We need to understand that there is a big difference between hope and expectation. Both forms of hope contain the idea of future expectations, but one is based upon people and the other is based upon God. We hope, we hope that dad or mom will bring home 
a good snack from the store. I expect mom and dad to bring home dinner. There is a difference. I hope my neighbor will do the right thing and maintain his yard. We hope when it comes to people, because sometimes people fail us. We can call this secular because it's placed on people. Secular hope is uncertain because its object is uncertain. Its object is people. But biblical hope, better phrased as expectation, is sure because God is its object. We see this in Psalm 71, 5. When I say, I hope that my investment will earn 10%, there is uncertainty because the object of my hope is unstable. But when I say, I expect Jesus Christ will return bodily, I am expressing something certain, but not realized yet. Expectation is built upon trust in God and his faithfulness. Believers should be people who have a habit of expectation built on the promises of God. The great missionary pioneer, Adon Aram Judson, was suffering from a fever in a wretched prison in Burma. A friend sent him a letter asking Judson, how's the outlook? Judson replied, the outlook is as bright as the promises of God. Unfortunately, many Christians have picked up the negative, hopeless spirit of this world because they focus on the problems instead of God and his promises. If you are developing that habit, it will make you bitter, not better, as you grow older. God's people should be people who have an expectation in God. Thus, the psalmist was in good stead in his old age because he had developed a deep knowledge of God and he had developed the godly habits of trust, praise, and expectation. In the third lesson, the Psalm 71 teaches us is that the psalmist himself had developed a lifestyle of ministry for God. Although the psalmist was old, and we see this in verses 9 and 18, and could have kicked back and said, I deserve some rest, he did not. He still had a concern for ministry or service. 
for testifying to others of God's faithfulness and power in verse 8, in verses 15 through 18 and 24. As long as he had breath, he wanted to keep telling people about God's greatness and glory. A worldly attitude has infiltrated the church, the ecclesia of the 21st century. It goes like this. I work all week, so my weekends are my free time to spend as I please. If we give God a couple of hours by going to church on, on one day a week, we feel like we have paid our dues. We do not want to be tied down with any kind of Christian service that would hinder us from taking off for the weekend when we feel like it. I call this playing at having a relationship with God. I'm going to make a radical statement that might step on some toes, but check it out in the Bible to see if I am right. If you are not involved in Christian service, you are too self-centered. I know that there are times in life when we are busier with family and job than other times. But if all you are doing is coming to some service or study once a week to take in what you can, if your focus is, what can I get out of this study, rather than how can I serve the Lord through this study, you are out of balance. There should be no such thing as a non-serving member in the body. Regarding old age, I think we need to challenge the American idea of retirement. We tend to go with the cultural view that retirement is a time in life when we can do what we want to do. But as Christians, we never earn the right to do what we want to do with our time. We never have the right to live selfishly. All of life must be lived under the Lordship of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And where in the Bible do you find the magic number 65 or 67 or 70? If you're freed up from your job at 65 and you are healthy, why not view it as an opportunity to serve the Lord full time? I would like to see more retired people going back to Bible college for some training and then heading out to serve on the mission fields. I would like to see older people begin to mentor younger people on how to serve. If you live to be 80, you could have more than a decade of self-supported ministry. The point is, the psalmist did not want to be delivered from his problems so that he could play golf and go fishing every day. He wanted to be delivered so that he could proclaim God's power to the next generation 
according to verse 18. He had a vision to hand off the baton to the younger generation. He saw a longer life as an opportunity for extended ministry. And his ministry was built on his knowledge of God and his habits of trust, praise, and hope. So we had something worth handing off. What about you? Are you developing a lifestyle of ministry now, built on your personal walk with God? It makes for a meaningful old age. There is a gentleman by the name of Bishop John Reed of Sydney, Australia, that he was preaching in Christ Church Cathedral one Sunday when a 75-year-old woman named Ethel Hatfield received the Lord as her Savior. Mrs. Hatfield had attended that Anglican church for decades, but the message had never gotten through to her until that day. As Bishop Reed recounts it, the following day she came to see him, and she said, I could hardly sleep last night. I was so excited about what happened. I want to do something to serve God with the few years I have left. I was wondering if I could teach Sunday school. Bishop Reed recounted that he looked at this 75-year-old white-haired woman and just could not picture her controlling the rambunctious third or fourth grade kids. So he said, I'm sorry, but we do not have an opening in our Sunday school. He stated her face fell. But Bishop Reed said, you mean business, don't you? He stated, I do not know what kind of service God may have for you, but let us pray. And so they prayed for God to reveal his will for her. The next day, Mrs. Hatfield was out in her yard tending her roses when a Chinese student from Taiwan walked by. He stopped and complimented her on her roses, and they began to talk. She thought, he seems like a decent young man, and will invite him in for a spot of tea. So she did, and she told him her testimony. He found it an interesting story. So when he had to leave, he asked if he could come back and talk further. She said, yes, and please bring a friend. He came back and brought a friend, and she again shared how she had come to faith in Jesus Christ after all these years, and how Christ had forgiven her sin and given her Eonian life. These students came back and brought more friends who brought even more. And within two weeks, Mrs. Hatfield was leading a weekly Bible study with 70 Chinese students in attendance. She led a good number of them to personal faith in Jesus Christ. That which seemed a hindrance to Mrs. Hatfield serving the Lord her age 
God turned into the key to reaching a group of people who respect old age. September 1930, I'm sorry, the September 1993 Global Prayer Digest tells the story of Jonah, a 73-year-old Chinese evangelist who, since 1976, has traveled around the People's Republic spreading the good news about Jesus Christ. His days are full and his energy unflagging. In one weekend, Jonah may bicycle nine hours, spend 40 hours on a hard railway seat, and eight hours on a bumpy bus just to bring the message of Jesus Christ to people in remote villages or to urban churches with 5,000 members or to young soldiers. The schedule is grueling. But 73-year-old Jonas stated, rest is for the next world. God's way for us to grow old is for us to develop a walk with him, a walk with him now, a walk that involves a deep, personal, experimental knowledge of God. A walk that includes the habits of trust, praise, and expectation. And a walk that involves a lifestyle of ministry for God. Then if we have life and breath, we can show and tell and sing of the greatness of our God to the next generation. What a way for any of us to spend our twilight years. Good day and God bless. We want to thank you for listening to this week's Differing Things podcast. If you would like to get more information about the Bible, please check out our website, www.beacon-ministries.org. Do not forget to join us next week for a new Differing Things podcast.